How's it going, Max? Hey, Josh. It's going pretty well. How are you? Pretty good. It's October already. Can you believe it? I actually can believe it. It kind of looks and feels like October. It's getting colder and colder and colder. I kind of like it. Uh, It makes my hands cold and it's hard to play. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Being outside is... um, Playing outside is not as fun. Yeah, even inside sometimes, like in the morning, and it's really cold inside. Yeah, yeah, it gets kind of, yeah, my house is like that too. So it's October and we've got a new guest this month. Who is it? Well, his name is Jared Hall. And oh, I hear he I'm plays pretty the excited trumpet. to talk to him. He does play the trumpet. I'm excited to talk to him too. Is playing trumpet in the cold uh, more difficult? I hear tuning is a lot more inconsistent. Like you take a break after one set and like even 10 minutes in you have to run the horn back up and it's yeah apparently yeah that's why people like blow air through their horns without making sound yeah aha aha drums get out of tune as well actually believe it or not accordions stay remarkably well in tune i think in the cold but after a certain point uh your hands just don't want to move as quickly anymore I have a funny story about a sax player who played uh, in the cold the in Boston. Of yeah. <laughs> How did that go? Uh, well, basically, he had uh, a budget for things, and for reasons we won't mention here, that budget disappeared um, during his first little bit of time there. And um, he ended up having to busk for money, and... I don't know that he quite realized how cold it got out there. So, you know, when it was like six degrees and snowing before the wind chill, he was outside playing a tenor saxophone for like oh my four to six hours a day. That sounds so miserable. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, probably not, not great. But anyway, back to Jared. Um, Let's talk to Jared. Is, yeah, I wonder if Jared's ever busked outside in the cold. That's a good question. He was in Miami, so... I don't think Maybe it really not. gets that cold there. But. <laughs> but he was also in Indiana. Well, let's and let Spokane. him tell us. That's true. Spokane does get really cold. Yeah, it does get cold. Who knows? All right. Well, let's talk to Jared. Yeah. Let's see what he says. Okay. We're rolling. How's it going, Jared? <laughs> I'm doing good, Josh. How are you doing? Pretty good. Uh, for those of you who don't know, because of course you don't know, because you can't see, we're doing this episode live in person. It's been such a long time since we've done it this way. It has. Thank you for being here, Jared. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you guys in person. Yeah. Yeah. So Spokane, that's where you're from, right? Originally from Spokane. Yeah. And uh, your website says you went to school in a bunch of different places and then somehow ended up in Seattle. But why'd you move here and, and when? So I finished up um, some graduate studies at the University of Miami mm-hmm. in 2015 and had a couple different options there. I was looking for jobs and was thinking about relocating somewhere, um, maybe a bigger city. But I hadn't been near home in quite a while and home Spokane and yeah. finding my way back to the Northwest kind of made sense, especially like maybe starting a family, being closer to family in general, but not moving back to Spokane. I had been a part of that scene. And so Seattle just made more sense um, cool. and just kind of took the plunge. And so I moved here uh, in the fall of 2015. So I've been here for about six years now. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So when, when you were thinking about that, were there players here that you were kind of aware of and thinking you might want to like play with or was it just kind of the city itself it was more the city itself and i knew there was a music scene here i didn't know a lot about it and i didn't know anybody which made it kind of difficult i mean i knew names like i had Mm -hmm. heard thomas marriott Mm -hmm. on record and i had heard him play live at a gen conference um in the past so i was familiar with some of the names um john bishop as well um but I didn't know a lot of musicians and I didn't know all that was going on. So when I moved here, I kind of had to figure all of that out. I can't believe you've gotten as embedded into the scene as you have in six years. That's like really quick. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's taken, it's taken a lot of energy and effort, you know, for sure. uh, As you, as you can imagine, just trying to meet people and find your place and, so see who you meld with musically and personally and just kind of doing a lot of research and figuring out what what does this seem like as compared to Miami or as compared to mm-hmm. 
uh, Indiana as compared to Spokane. They're all very different. For yeah. sure. Is there a jazz scene in Spokane? There, well, I haven't played and been around Spokane in quite a while. I'm, I moved out of Spokane in 2008. Um, and that's where I went and did my original undergraduate degree at Whitworth University. Mm. Um, so I played and was a part of the music scene there. There is a music scene there. I, I played with a band called Six Foot Swing. That's where I kind of cut my teeth with some older musicians. Was everybody six foot tall? Oh, well, originally, the original, <laughs> the original band members were, and so I fit, I fit the fit that. You, you definitely know. qualify. <laughs> I was qualified, yeah, but I was, I was the youngest member, and I was, I think I was like maybe nineteen or twenty when I started playing with them. And there's the Spokane Jazz Orchestra, who I sat mm. in with a couple mm -hmm. times, and little freelancing things here with my fellow colleagues at the college, and sure. So I don't know what the scene is like there now, but there are some some things going on. I think, yeah, cool, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to actually hear about how you got started in trumpet and music. You've gone and got you've gone and gotten like three degrees in trumpet, right? Or music in general? Yeah. So I did my undergraduate uh, music degree at Whitworth mm -hmm. and, in Spokane, and then a few years later, I wanted to pursue further studies and improve, but I didn't want to stay in the Northwest. I know sure. I could have got a full ride to a couple places and I wanted to kind of branch out and grow mm -hmm. and be the, be the little fish as they say in a big pond. Sure. So I applied to graduate school a couple years in a row, finally got a break and a, a scholarship opportunity to go to Indiana university in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. Good school, really good school, big music school, phenomenal mm -hmm. jazz program. And I was drawn there. Um, a couple of the trumpet teachers um, were, were attractive to me to, 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 to study with, but also the great um, educator and originally a trombonist, uh, David Baker, was mm. still teaching there. So that was that was my um, impetus to pursue studies there. And also the, the trumpet pedagogy um, and the history of, of that school has also been developed by Bill Adam. And so there's a lineage there. And Bill Adam is this incredible brass pedagogue, trumpet pedagogue, and he was still alive and teaching in the city. So there was a lot, a lot there for me, I think, and in, in growing and, and some resources there that I knew wouldn't be accessible forever. So, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So what, I guess at what point did you know or decide that you wanted to make trumpet and music your career? Because clearly three degrees in, you really like the trumpet and really like studying trumpet. It's a lot of studying. <laughs> it's a lot of school. I'm glad I took a break between my undergraduate and my master's. A lot of mm -hmm. people don't. A lot of people just go, even at the same school, they just go right through their master's. Some people even do a doctorate after that. I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah. I did pursue uh, doctoral studies at, at, at Frost, mm -hmm. uh, Frost School of Music and University of Miami, but only because I got a full ride tuition scholarship and a, a teaching assistantship nice. under Brian Lynch. So it was like all paid for. And I was young younger you know didn't have a family and no roots put down it's like okay here's this opportunity you know i can put it on the back burner and go get a job or move to another scene and play more music and that that could have been really wise to do but um i just wanted to pursue pursue this opportunity um but but to answer your question i found music when i started in college really i didn't have any Whoa. teachers I didn't have any teachers when I was coming up until my uh, undergraduate. And so there I was inspired to pursue, pursue music. So when I was in high school, I did a lot of sports. I mm -hmm. did play, the, play in the bands and a bunch of bands and I did practice my trumpet, but I didn't have any private teachers or, you know, direct mentors. I had an incredible band director by the name of Mike Jones, who was inspirational, encouraging, Cool, but I really was going to maybe study architecture originally. Oh, wow. It was really into art and drawing and painting. Definitely always had a creative side. And then I spent more time in the music building than the art building. So I just realized, okay, maybe I need to pursue this music thing. And I was never, I was never very talented, really. I mean, I just had this drive and passion <laughs> and needed to have resources, great teachers to kind of help me along. Yeah. yeah. So you made the switch while you were in college yeah not before interesting, interesting. yeah cool that's correct. 
Cool. Well, so I have two things to mention. One, we're here to talk about your recent release, Scene on the Scene, um, which is a great record. But also, we did something a little bit different for this episode where we actually asked people on social media if they had any questions Mm. or things they were interested in hearing about. And one of them you just touched on a little bit, and that was uh, Mr. Brian Lynch. Um, Yes. Someone asked if you could just say a little bit about what it was like to spend time with him. Yeah, that's a great question. So just a little bit of backstory. After my master's degree at Indiana, I had notebooks full of stuff I needed to practice and work on. So it's not like I was trying to go to school to to get more, right? And, And so I was very specific when I applied to schools. I wanted to study with somebody who was doing music as a career and an artist I admired. And mm. Brian fit that category and was one of the and that was one of the, Frost was one of the schools that I applied to. And I had the opportunity to go there, audition. They had me play in all the bands. And so I got this op- opportunity to kind of be under his wing. And that's how it was. It was kind of like an apprenticeship, a mentorship. Mm. Mm. And that's how Brian kind of kind of took his um his teaching assistants. And so Brian would go on tour for a week or two and you'd step in his shoes and have to play his trumpet parts and you have to direct his bands at the school. And, you know, we do even, you know, be side by side together in certain recording sessions or in the South Florida uh, jazz orchestra, for example. And so, you know, it was more um, like a mentorship than just like, Hey, I'm your teacher. You need to do these things. I mean, even during lessons um, we would just maybe go get coffee and Mm -hmm. talk. And then you say, you know, Next week, come over at Saturday at two, and we go hang out, <laughs> and we'd hang out till four in the morning. Wow! And say, I got to awesome. go. I got to go home. So that was the <laughs> that was the lesson. And during that time, we'd play and listen to music and go have dinner, uh, have a drink, jam, play together. And so that was a really amazing opportunity. Um, Sounds like is it. more almost more collegial, or at least trying for me yeah. to aspire to be more collegial with him mm. and. That made it hard to leave Miami because that was a resource and a connection that I knew would not be accessible anymore. I mean, that's kind of like the dream education scenario, to be honest. I mean, it's like the modern day apprenticeship kind of thing. Yeah. And that's... Hang out with. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he ran a jam session for Mm -hmm. a year. And so he'd be, he'd run the band and we'd be doing, we'd host this jam session. Sometimes he wouldn't be there. So I'd have to host the jam session. Very cool. And so you'd learn how to conduct yourself at the jam or how he would run the jam or how do you sit in at a jam, <laughs> right? How, how do you play, you know, um, all these things that, as you know, Max, are really <laughs> Im- important as part of the scene and, and developing your musicianship. And so I learned just a lot of lessons and that's how Brian learned, right? He was, he was in the band of Horace Silver mm-hmm. and Art Blakey and the Messengers. Yeah. So that's how he learned is the old school way. So even though he's part of, of an organization and an institution he's approaching and he, he definitely approaches it academically at a certain point, but also there's this old school way of bringing up the younger generation. Right. Definitely. Yeah. It's really sounds yeah like an amazing experience. It feels like that kind of jazz education is getting rarer and rarer these days where so many people instead are going to school and taking lessons and classes and lectures rather than, coming up alongside an an incredible experienced musician like you've been able to do. And I think that first part is still important, but but to be Mm -hmm. around musicians who've actually done it and been a part of a music scene doesn't necessarily have to be New York or LA, I think, but who played and been in the field. Um, And that you're seeing that happen more with some of these veteran players in their, you know, fifties or forties starting to be more part of the institution. So I see things kind of starting to move that direction more. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to listen to a song here in a second, but before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about how you kind of decided upon your rhythm section for this album? Yeah, definitely guys, you know? Yeah, definitely. So I, uh, on the record, you're going to hear in the rhythm section, John Hansen at the piano. You're going to hear Michael Glenn on the bass and Matt Jorgensen on the drums. And then, so how, yeah, how'd you meet these guys and stuff? Yeah. So when I first got on the scene, I hit your jam session with the trio at the Angry Beaver a lot and the Alan Thistle a lot. 
and sat in with a lot of a lot of people and also got to meet a lot of musicians and kind of suss out okay who who might i want to play with um and so eventually i started playing with those guys and really it ha- happened by getting a chance to have a residency at tula's a monthly performance at tula's uh, jazz club and i had the same rhythm almost essentially the same rhythm section there for two years wow and so there i cultivated the band they were there to play with me and i wrote original music for almost every gig and so it only made sense that after those the i think it was maybe a year and a half to record this band i mean it's actually a band of people who've been playing together um you wrote originals for every gig i tried to one at least one or two you know it wasn't like all (laughs) new original but yeah i try to see it okay the deadline in two weeks i got another gig at tula's let's write another tune or two tunes wow Yeah. yeah That's uh, when I was playing at La Spiga in Capitol Hill, I would try to do that too because it's like, really, yeah. Well, at least bring in one original per okay. per time. I guess in my head, I was thinking like a full set of oh new no, songs. No, no. <laughs> but I mean, it's <laughs> like if you've got a regular gig going, yeah. it's like yeah. a, a free chance to get to workshop something. It's yeah, definitely a nice goal to have. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity, and those opportunities, as as you guys know, is is rare and rare. If you totally. Can, so that's I I just created a like like for school. It's like okay, your due day is here. It's yep. like okay, the, mm-hmm. we're we're playing in a few days. I need to finish this chart so we can play it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So were a lot of these tunes were the were, were a lot of these tunes the ones that ended up on the record then? Yeah, I think almost everything we had played at Tula's at least once or twice. Nice. Some of them wow. more than that, but yeah. So sure. it made it really easy when we got into the studio. Yeah, that that was another benefit. Oh, that's really nice. that's an, you know. You know, it's like if you get some people who don't play together all that much and you get a bunch of new tunes, I mean, doing it in one day, good luck, you know? <laughs> Whoa. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how that, that made it possible to make that that scenario much easier with less, less friction, you know? Yeah. Sounds like it. Well, yeah. let's get into it. Yeah, uh, let's check it out. A, uh, listen to the title track, Scene on the Scene. Awesome. Here we go. Thank you. 
Jared, I love the song. Um, it has a lot of energy, and I love your solo and the way that you enter your solo on this one. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, specifically, I yeah, I was I was listening to this in the car on the way here too, and I was thinking about. I mean, I might be totally off my rocker, but mm-hmm. um, your solo in particular uh, was kind of giving me the impression that you were kind of uh, musically describing the emotional state of a jazz musician in Seattle, uh, kind of living the gigging life and kind of the interplay between the ups and downs in that. And that was just what came to my mind when I was listening to your, your solo on that tune. But anyway, the whole thing was awesome. I loved it a lot. That's a great, that's a great thought. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a bit of specific. There's there's a bit, there's probably a bit of truth to that, you know, good. Is anybody who's who's doing this thing, there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. Yeah. 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 And it's kind of like, well, without getting too into the harmony and stuff, it's kind of creatively disguised as kind of like a, pseudo happy with little interesting undertones kind of a thing yeah um but yeah also this is not just uh the personnel that we mentioned previously there's an alto on this song anybody want to talk about that (laughs) i think only one person here is qualified (laughs) to talk about the alto on this record (laughs) that's right fair enough (laughs) yeah i was fortunate to have the the great vincent herring join us on this session yeah that's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's actually another uh, question somebody asked on the Facebook. Mm-hmm. How did you get connected to Vincent Herring? So just a touch of backstory and then I'll answer the question. I've been listening to Vincent since I was in like my late teens. Wow. Through some Scott Wenholt records, who's a phenomenal mm. New York-based trumpet player. And then so I started to really get into Vincent's playing and kind of figured out, okay, he's played with some of the heaviest musicians there mm-hmm. are freddie hubbard comes to mind um you know, a lot of trumpet players you know brian he played with brian and that's how i kind of started to hear more of brian lynch as well so yeah, those guys are okay they're all right right <laughs> <laughs> they play real good yeah. <laughs> um so i've always been admired um admiring his playing and and he's got a lot of fire right uh, very aggressive sound, and I hear him coming out a, can- a lot of cannonball in his playing, mm, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so, um, at this time, I had this opportunity to be the interim director of jazz studies at Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma for a year, um, while were they while they were looking for a national hire to fulfill that position. And so, part of my duties were were to have this uh, year end concert where we can. You know, I was given a budget to bring in a guest artist to play with the band and do some clinics and um, do a couple different things with the program there. And so I reached out to Vincent and I, you know, I was like, here's the deal. would love to have you come out here, play with the band, do this thing. He said, cool. That sounds great. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Nice. The kids were really excited after I played some records of his, it's like I, you know, especially some hungry saxophone players who mm-hmm. wanted to kind of, you know, check out his music and his approach a bit more. And so after that happened, I was like, cool, Vince is coming out here. And by this time I was like, okay, I want to record again. And I just reached out again. I said, Hey, how would you feel if you did this? It's going to be a busy weekend, but would you be down to play some of my music? Here's, here's some samples. Um, He's so like, this is while he was out for the school thing that exactly. he did the session. Exactly. Cool. He said, send me the charts so i'll check him out and so i did that and he said he was into it and so i paid him for that session and we did a gig at tula's wow and we did a little rehearsal and then we did the session the next day i remember hearing about that i wish i could have gone yeah it was it was fun um it was great i mean it was like kind of like a rehearsal for the whole band because i played with the rhythm section a bunch mm-hmm. but not these tunes with vincent in the mix for right? sure when was this actually recorded again it's kind of old now at this point. It was recorded in <laughs> May of 2018. Actually. Oh my gosh. So it's been sitting for a minute. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah I had, uh, when I was uh, checking out this record and looking through the personnel, I saw Vincent's name and I was like, whoa, I just transcribed one of his solos like last fall and was that's awesome. Yeah, pretty excited to see his name. So yeah, uh, you've been sitting on this for a while. Uh, how did, how, why, why now? Why release it now? And um, what did the process look like? Yeah, so I mean, 
often with things that life happens. So, um, I mean, part of it was monetary, just saving enough, enough money to pay the musicians properly, pay mm -hmm. for the studio time. As you, as you guys know, mm -hmm. just getting the, the first part of it done takes a lot of investment. So I had done that up front, even some mixing up front and needed to save up some more money for that. And during that time I had my son, Mm -hmm. You know, who's, who's, uh, his name is Ezra. He's incredible. So I was, you know, taking care of a newborn, um, half the time at least or more. And then COVID hit, you know, during this time. And so I, it just kind of sat for a while, but when COVID hit, I kind of was like, okay, we're probably not going to play for a while. And I stayed busy as a teacher, luckily online, but I was like, I need to finish some projects because I'm always <laughs> like thinking of the next project, but yeah. this one's not done. Yeah. And yeah, maybe you can relate to that too. So I was like, Very, I got to yeah. get the record done <laughs> and to get this done. And so I started a Kickstarter for it and that came through that started. I think that Kickstarter was back in February of this last year. Um, and it, it went through. And so that allowed me to do the post-production, you know, the, the artwork, um, the mixing, the mastering, all that stuff is also very expensive, as you know. So mm -hmm. finally got it done. Uh, hopefully the next one won't take that long, but sometimes it does. You it's know? a process. Yeah, I mean, I've seen, seen artists I admire. They're like, they'll play me something. It's like, yeah, I recorded this three years ago. It's coming out next year. So mm -hmm. it's not totally unique. No, know? yeah. I think the longest I've ever heard of is like uh, a 10-year wait. <laughs> well yeah i mean there's actually a new coltrane recording of a love supreme coming out that's true that's a little bit different but i don't mm. think he's been sitting on it this whole time just waiting and no, biding but, his time. but uh, who was it somebody just passed away um it was the guy you studied with at u-dub um tenor player i think i studied with at u-dub yeah I didn't study with a tenor player. You no, know. no, no. I think he was leading something there when you were there. What was his name? Um, anyway, he was sitting on the recording and he passed away. Huh. And I think his like wife or something found it. And anyway, this is kind of a side story, but it's coming out this month. There's a new, it was recorded in Seattle. Huh? Yeah. It'll be cool to check out Joe I'm Brazil forward to that. I did not study with Joe Brazil. Oh, I thought you did. Nope. He was there when you were there though, right? Nope. Oh, Okay cool never mind <laughs> now that we cleared anyway, that up <laughs> he had the recording <laughs> yeah i i did read that story uh, yeah. but i did not read the part where i studied with him at <laughs> and there we yeah, have let's it move on from that <laughs> okay so <laughs> josh do you have a trumpet question yeah i do have a trumpet question sure so yeah uh yeah that's a you're more qualified segue. than i am yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as somebody who is really interested in instruments and gear in general, even when that's not an instrument that I necessarily play or play well, uh, I saw that you are, uh, a dealer of AR resonance mouthpieces and that's how cool. did you get from being a trumpeter to also being a dealer of mouthpieces for the entire Pacific Northwest? Yeah. So I wear a few hats as a lot of full-time musicians do. So I started playing AR resonance maybe in 2017 and I actually play AR resonance mouthpieces on this record. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point I just said, you know, I let Antonio know that I just admire his work and he's doing such a great job and that I had, I, I actually kind of just started letting students try them. Wow. And they're like, I want to buy this from you. I don't want to let this mouthpiece go. <laughs> mm. And so it kind of started with that where I'd buy more from him because students were taking them from me, you know? which is fine because they sounded great and they, you know, want to make sure they're successful. So then Antonio was like, well, may, you know, would you be interested in being a dealer? You know, I said, sure. You know, so I've got a stock of mouthpieces and anybody who's interested can reach out and get a consultation. Uh, there's a fee for that unless you buy a mouthpiece um, where I try to get the player, you know, set up with the right equipment. So the way his mouthpieces work for, Anybody's a brass player, a trumpet player, there's a top and there's a backboard. So it's a two piece, two piece mouthpiece and you can custom, it's basically, you can customize both options. That's optimal for the player uh, and the horn that they're playing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Cool. Yeah. He's a craftsman. You know, if you ever go online, Facebook, his horns are incredibly 
beautiful. I haven't tried a whole bunch of his horns because he's based in Italy. Mm. I'll have to take a trip at some point. How did you end up trying his mouthpieces in the first place? Um, I think through Ch- Chad McCullough, who you, you might be oh. familiar with yeah. his name, um, having been in Seattle. And, and so Chad has been playing them for a while. And so I reached out to him and he's a dealer uh, for them as well, mm. based in Chicago. And he sent gotcha. me a bunch of stuff. And then I saw him play live at the Royal Room on a little tour and he, he gave me a bunch more stuff. He's like, okay, whatever you don't like or send it back to me. So I bought a, a, a good handful from him. Hmm. Hmm. That's kind of how it all started. Wow. Yeah. Thanks to Chad. So Very cool. Really phenomenal trumpet player as well. You know. Awesome. Sounds yeah. like there's a bit of an, just a market of trumpeters trading mouthpieces, selling them back and forth across the country. It's pretty entertaining to watch. It can be fun. You know, I mean, he's got some of the best players in the world playing his stuff. Mm. Um, For those who don't know, how much of a difference does a trumpet mouthpiece make on your sound? So I was telling, talking to Josh about this just a little bit before, but I think, you know, it's mostly the player, you know, it's not going to make a huge, <laughs> it's not going to make a huge difference. Like I could pick up that horn and whatever mouthpiece that is that I see and, and sound 96% Jared Hall, oh, Okay, I'd say, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, if you want to dial things in after mm-hmm. you've got your chops together, then it can be worth, you know, looking into that in a smart and productive way you know it can be a bit of a rabbit hole if you're just buying random mouthpieces online and definitely selling them and trying things different different things every week or something it can be very confusing okay so 96 so percent. but how much does a trump player <laughs> want a mouthpiece to affect their sound <laughs> well i don't know that's a good question you know i mean we're you know we're always searching for for more of what our sound is whether in, for sure in, and, and some that's people true of any are, instrument, right? Like even non horns, yeah. uh, then that's that's something that's um, yeah. Could we're be started chasing. about symbols. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some people are gonna you know do that a lot more. There's you know, but there's other players who who I've listened to their interviews. Just, I've been playing the same horn and mouthpiece for thirty five years, and they sound phenomenal. Right? Yeah. There's others. Um, that I see on the scene, the national scene, they have a different horse, and, a horn and mouthpiece every time I hear them play or every time I see a YouTube video, but they wow. still have their sound. They still mm, sound great. Wild. So at the end of the day, I'd say get in the practice room and develop your sound for sure. <laughs> and then you can, you can go check out all those other options. Cool. Well, yeah. speaking of your sound, why don't we take a listen to another track off of this album? Sweet. That sounds great. Yeah. Let's check out force for good. All right. Cool. Thank you. 
All right, force for good. I love this melody. It's so cool, and it like whines and and like I I don't I don't know how to put it into words, but I really really like how it goes. Where oh, did this you. come from, and what's this tune all about? I I really appreciate that. Yeah, so this is this is a tune um, that's kind of a nod to the great John Coltrane. I think we were just talking about a second ago, and um, as you might know as he got into the later stage of his life, he became more spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of guided his music to be more in tune with what direction he was going on a spiritual level. And yeah. so, so I, there's some great interviews and I was just listening, I think I was listening to a little interview and he just makes a statement like, I just want to be a force for good in this world. Right. And mm-hmm. that really struck me. And I was always been a fan of his music. And so, started writing this melody and it just felt like that that mantra went with this tune and this tune also is based off of just for our jazz heads out there is based off of a chord progression and a tune that coltrane wrote called uh lazy bird Mm. from the record blue train so Mm. if you're familiar with that tune and that set of chord progressions um that's what the the whole composition is based off of very cool Yeah, yeah that's really really cool well, Max alluded a little bit ago to uh, us having asked uh, listeners of the podcast on Facebook if they had any questions for you. Let's yeah. go for another one. Um, Thomas Merritt asked, where is Coral Way? Speaking of another tune that's on your record. Yeah, so that's a title uh, of a, kind of a 12-8 Afro-Cuban feel tune that that I really enjoy uh, enjoyed putting together and the the title comes from a neighborhood in, um, in South Florida in Miami that kind of connects Coral Gables, mm. which is a neighborhood I spent a lot of time in the school music's there. Uh, WDNA radio is there. I spent a lot of time doing sessions there. Um, and it kind of connects to the city of Miami Cool, and it's a beautiful area. I think it's uh, Vizcaya Gardens is there. It's like this museum area. It's very beautiful flowers and and just growth that you can check out. And there's a lot of cool things to do in that little little neighborhood. So that's kind of where it came from. And it's kind of not a nod to some time I spent in Miami on the scene and doing music there. And just another little aside, um, there's a Soli. If people go listen to the tune, there's a Soli in there that I wrote that's very intricate and kind of difficult to play on the trumpet. And it really is inspired by a pianist who I played with quite a bit there and still try to is his name is tall Cohen. He's a cool. pianist who's doing some great. And he things. was on your first record. Yeah. He's on the first record hallways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love tall Cohen. Yeah. I really admire his musicianship and you know, he's really active putting up like little videos on social media of live performances or even just like here I'm practicing this. And so one day he put this video up in this little snippet. It's like maybe 20 seconds. And I took it down, transcribed <laughs> nice. it, and and then brought it over and made a little few modifications. And I was like, this would sound really good in 12.8. And that's kind of where the tune started, mm, wow. actually. Is with the, From more, the with the, more with the soli. Interesting. Whoa. And then I captured this other melody that you hear. It's kind of based on some ideas that you hear actually a lot in people's improvisations and playing so he's one of my favorite living piano players actually you brought him out to the angry yeah. beaver sessions well that he, one time, right? jared brought him to seattle to play oh, a gig. while he was here happened. he played the angry beaver i see <laughs> I yeah because i first came across yeah. him hearing up at, at the angry beaver session and, and was so so blown away by his playing yeah he's, he's, he's awesome. incredible yeah he's phenomenal he's a force in and he's still based in miami florida but he does a lot of touring with some some artists and mm. actually but right as the pandemic hit he was going to come out in may um just a few months after everything hit and so all that got put on hold but we're already in the the talks of trying to bring him out here this spring nice. do, do a bunch of gigs and for any educators listening out there we did some clinics before so we're hoping to do some educational outreach and some clinics so cool Hopefully we can get him out here every once in a while. So, Man, yeah, keep yeah. me posted on that for sure. I will, definitely. Well, speaking of education, this is related to a question that Kate Voss asked, but I'm going to spin it around and ask, you wrote a book on jazz harmony and uh, I guess, yeah. And I think it's educational actually more of a pedagogy. piano book. That's what I'm saying. You wrote a piano book, but you're a trumpet player. How did this, 
why'd you write a piano book? And why'd you write it? Second question, why'd you write a piano book before you wrote a trumpet book? Good questions. Good questions. So uh, a lot a lot there, but we'll try to like make it more conden- condensed. It's uh, It was one of my pandemic projects. So it, it got cool. finished in June of 2020, mm-hmm. something that had been sitting for a while. But I had been spending about five or six years developing the book. Wow. Hours and hours and hours. And it really comes out of my study from at, um, my dissertation at the University of Miami, oh, okay. which you can find online for free. If anybody's interested in like, what the heck is the piano grip system? You can just Google that and you get a 305 page document that you can fall asleep to just checking <laughs> it out. Right. So, and that really was uh, inspired by the previous director of jazz studies there with Seidner, who mm. has a legacy of creating and curating ph- phenomenal pedagogy and jazz bands and studio recordings at Miami. And he was kind of on his way out retiring, you know? So I was like one, you know, one of the last students to take his classes in it's, it was called in, in advanced improvisation, but it was this whole idea about getting to the piano and understanding basic chord voicings and being able to execute mm. on the piano, mm-hmm. which which was very unique and it kind of brought together a lot of things that I learned from my undergraduate in Indiana and because I'd learned a lot about jazz and harmony and chord scales and all this stuff that that we we talked about, but it brought together in like a really focused and really concrete way. It kind of simplified everything, but it also made me hear things a certain way and it allowed me to compose at the piano. That's mostly what I use it for. So it's not like it's a it's a system to try to become the next next great Bill Evans or Chick Corea, though it can get you started understanding this stuff. So out of that dissertation, which has maybe about 30% of the book, um, I decided to write this book with wit and develop the whole thing and self-published it. So if you know if you want to check that out, it's on my website um, for purchase. Um, and I have a copy. It's cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's 175 pages. There's a lot there. Um, some people's, you know, they're like, I don't know what to do. I've read the first 20 pages and I don't know if I can go to go, (laughs) go do the first 20 pages like four times in a row and you'll be okay. You know? So there's a lot there and it's kind of a labor of love. It's like, it hit me so passionately that I was like, other people need to know about this pedagogy, but also in wits class, what I experienced is like, I'm scrambling to take notes and other people are shooting videos and going through the videos really slowly and trying to transcribe what he was teaching. Cause he was old school too. It's like, mm. he didn't have notes or PDFs or videos. It's like, there it is. You got it. Nope. Here, do it again. <laughs> you know, and I'm yeah. writing down notes. So I thought this is a valuable resource that, you know, cause he's not going to write a book and most people wouldn't. I've spent hundreds of hours developing it and, Luckily, you know, he took a lot of his time with me to, we met privately one-on-one, you know, my last year there to work, work on this and make sure I took things down in a way that he wanted it to be documented. So mm. yeah, that's a little bit about it. So yeah, that's awesome. Wow. Are you going to write a book about trumpet too? Oh uh, yeah. So that's another project I've been thinking about and I've already <laughs> kind of started, you know, I teach, teach some, um, some students and have for a while and so i'm developing my own pedagogy and it's kind of again it's influenced from a lot of my mentors and teachers over the years and kind of bringing it my unique spin to it so there is a trumpet book but i'm also wondering if there's a jazz book or if it should be a jazz trumpet book or maybe two books because there's a lot mm. of stuff i've developed so i'm trying to figure that out but yes that's up and coming it's in the works yeah nice yeah well, that's actually one of the things we wanted to ask about that we always ask about is what other projects are you working on? Or is there anything else that we have looking forward to? Mm, that's a good question. So yeah, my pedagogy is a big one that I'm trying to uh, to focus on. Um, and I've been writing some new new music for during the pandemic, not a lot of rehearsing or playing it, but curating uh, a bunch of tunes for what I'd like to be another recording. I'm not nice. sure you know, the, the specifics like personnel or what that would look like, but just, you know, I don't want, I don't want to stay stagnant too long. You know, hopefully I can record in the next half a year, a year and put something out in another few years. That's my goal. But I've also been having an itch, which is kind of nutty in these days to develop more a uh, big band repertoire. Whoa. So I've got some of my own tunes that I've been 
arranging and developing for big band. Awesome. You know, I could actually hear some of the songs on this album as big band arrangements. Now that you mentioned that for sure. I think some of those would cool. work pretty well for that. Yeah, I hope so. You know, I mean, mm. that takes a lot of time and effort uh, on top of other things I'm doing, but that's something I'm trying to chip away at as well. Yeah. yeah. Just developing those arrangements and those charts. Yeah. Very cool. Cool. Um, if people want to listen to your album, and or find out kind of what you're up to, what are the best places to do that? Yeah, so the best place is just directly on my website, which mm-hmm. is jaredhall.net. You can just put that in. Dot net, eh? Dot net. That's <laughs> Interesting. <right. laughs> That's the cool one. So that the website's the best place, and that kind of links to everything I'm doing, whether it's educational, performances, like I have a calendar if you want to come see us play live. Cool. The book, uh, the music's there. On Bandcamp, it's on the website. Bandcamp's a good place to check it out, but you also can go to Orange and Records and, and look up a lot of information and reviews about the album. Um, yeah, so so everything's all kind of there. Also, also, social media at Jared Hallways on Facebook and Instagram. There's little things I do there, little videos or what I call one-minute clinics because all you can put up is one minute where yeah. I'll just talk about pedagogy for fun. So there's a few things. Yeah, Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think we're about time, but yeah, awesome record. And Definitely. thank you again. Cool, gentlemen. Thank you so much yeah, for having thanks me. For being I here. really appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time to do this here. It's been a great service to the community. And I'd say, you know, I'm trying to let people know who are new to the scene. Like you want to learn about the music scene. Check out this podcast. Awesome. Check thanks. out, check out oh, what's man. going on in Seattle. This is one of a bunch of resources that have come out of this pandemic and You've really served the community well doing this. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah. You've been listening to Jazz Talk Seattle, a monthly podcast hosted by Josh Howe and Max Holmberg, mixed by Ronan DeLille.